0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkinett in Edinburgh. John is always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great this morning. Thank ha- you very much. Happy Valentine's
1: Day. Happy, Happy Valentine's Day. Day to you too. Yes. And um, we're in the aftermath of the Super Bowl, which is a national holiday in our country. Did you have any? Uh, no. Did I you, you experience I did. the Super Bowl in any way, David?
0: I, I did. I did not.
1: The halftime show. No, was, none of was that. Remarkable. No, and, no yeah, and I didn't. People I didn't are st- loving, I, loving it or hating it. I didn't
0: stay up. Honestly, it was it was too late at the time for me. But you? I listened to some of it on the radio. I mean, I've kind
1: of given up American football uh, for all kinds of reasons, not least because of the antisocial hours and the violence, the brain damage and so on. But I did. I, I was listening to it. I'm prepared to go to America, as you know, soon. So you, and you need
0: to prepare yourself for the conversations you're going to gonna have in the Yes, I,
1: I wanted to be part of the conversation. Part of the conversation. So, uh, but, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have a rooting interest of any kind.
0: But. All right. So, so speaking of, of conversations, there was a... I want to say notorious, but a, a, a controversial open letter that circulated last week that we're going to use as sort of the springboard for our conversation uh, in this episode. Do you want to tell listeners who may not be familiar with this open letter what, what, what the controversy was about and, and and how we can make sense of it?
1: Okay, uh, so I, I will try. <laughs> so, so, so it's... Um... What's interesting is I wonder how widespread this controversy was in the sense it was very big in our world and it made the New York Times, but I'm not sure how how significant it was. I let, let me briefly the Globe and the Guardian, a few yeah.
0: other things. Anyway.
1: Let me briefly summarize it, which is to say, uh, there was a a man at there is a man at Harvard, an anthropologist named John Komaroff, who's been at the center of um, sexual harassment allegations, and thirty eight Harvard professors last week. Um, issued, uh, early last week, issued an open letter which was published in the Harvard Crimson, the the, the student newspaper at Harvard. Um, again, we don't want, I think we want to stipulate at the outset, we don't have expertise and we don't know the inside details of this case and it's not really appropriate for us to comment on that aspect of it. But 38 Harvard professors expressed uh, what could be interpreted as either support for Komarov and or uh, criticism of Harvard's um, procedures for dealing with such cases because Komorov had been sanctioned and suspended. As the week unfolded, there was a pretty furious backlash against these 38 uh, academics who, who signed the letter in support of somebody who seems to be a fairly problematic, uh, problematic individual. There's also another
0: open letter yep. written by a bunch of people who were not at Harvard,
1: Yes, 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 that's right. There was a letter that appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which was a very similar letter, um, which involved lots of um, uh, people in Komarov's field. He's an African anthropologist. Um, and there were a lot of, uh, yes, so, so there were two open letters last week. And then the backlash was so furious that by the end of last week, there was a counter letter another open letter at Harvard, uh, published in the Crimson, that uh, was signed by more than at least seventy academics. I don't know the, the number kept rising, condemning the first the first, the first letter. <laughs> so we had two open letters at Harvard, and then the week ended with thirty four of the original thirty eight signers of the first letter, trying to retract, uh, is kind of repudiating the letter, revoking mm-hmm. their signatures, and I don't know that you can do that but the right. you in can as do much it. as an
0: open letter has any weight to it at all
1: right and so we don't want to talk about that controversy it's an important controversy and there are important um, issues arising from it about sexual harassment in higher education and issues like that those are important they're not our theme today what we wanted to discuss today was the kind of genre of the open letter and the, the the open letters in in American history. So so although the issues raised by the Harvard case are important, and some of the names will be well known to our listeners and the yes. people who signed the letter and then revoked their signatures, um, that's not a, the details of that particular case aren't our concern. What we want to concern ourselves with is
0: is open letters in American history. David, what is an open well, letter? Well, that was the question I was going to actually going to ask you because it strikes me that an open letter. What's the difference between an open letter, a petition, and a letter to the editor? Are those things? Because sometimes those seem like they could be the same thing, Sometimes they could be different things, um, and, and so I'm not always quite sure what the what the distinction is between those as categories. Um, I mean, it strikes me that open letters, like letters to the editor, you know, they they use a kind of media platform to disseminate a message. Um, obviously, they have they have a form often of a of a letter to a particular person, uh, but oftentimes it's not. Intended that a particular person is, is the sole or even the main audience for the letter.
1: Um, I, guess, I'm sorry, I, I, I guess we're down to what does open mean in open letter? Is it open in terms of the signatories or open in terms of
0: the... Well, I think it's open in terms of it's not a closed letter that you put in the mail and, and is intended for a particular recipient. It's intended for the general public or intended for a public, if not...
1: Right, so the, the Harvard letter the harvard letter is an interesting case in point because i think the community it was intended for was the harvard community which is why it was published in the in the crimson uh and it achieved notoriety and and gained Mm. traction and frankly attention in the wider community particularly thanks to social media in ways that i think were probably unexpected by its its signatories and i don't know about
0: that signatories are full of very smart people i think they understand that the internet exists and you know, the, the things that are published in the, in the Harvard Crimson um, by people of that status are going to p- attract attention, uh, especially on the, this particular issue. If it had been an open letter on some kind of trivial academic matter, that, then, you know, I think they could have assumed it was going to be internal, um, you know, but uh, given, given the nature of, of, of what uh, the accusations were and, and, and the kind of Politics were in today. I think they. If they didn't, then then they were very foolish.
1: Okay, so so in terms of the openness of open letters, mm. um, they are intended for public consumption. Yes, uh, clearly. I mean, I think that's a really important element to it. Uh, how the letter writers conceive of the public is an interesting question, uh, particularly given mm. some of the examples we might talk about this morning. Uh, there are usually, but not always multiple signatories not
0: sometimes sometimes yeah, okay yeah it uh, could be but
1: but not always because some of the most famous open letters we're going to discuss today mm. are actually written by individuals sure. I think the difference between a, a, an open letter so you gave you, you asked me three you gave presented three categories open le, open letters letters to the editor and petitions right, right? I don't think petitions are open letters because petitions are usually although they're they're, they're siblings
0: <laughs> they're adjacent to each other well,
1: petitions are usually to some uh, are directed at some uh, body of authority that has authority to make decisions to influence a particular policy
0: yes but i guess it depends on the, how the form of the petition is is, is structured and how it's disseminated cuz i mean i'm thinking today a letter a letter tons of online petitions or people sign it where it's ostensibly going to congress or parliament or the president or whoever it is there they're sending these these petitions to uh but in reality they are the the main audience for them is not that particular person who is the addressee of the petition but uh, the broader community of, of of readers yeah there were
1: several petitions during the trump presidency by historians for example calling for the impeachment of president trump right which i know that
0: i think i signed at least one of those
1: yeah as did i and the, the, those were of, of the nature you're describing. Um, okay, I, yeah, I, I, I take your point on that. I, I, let's actually talk about some examples we'll rather, get they, rather than the uh, definitions. Uh, get, get too hung up on the definitions. Uh, but those petitions, they beg the question, which is something I think mm. we need to consider, which is how effective are open letters actually? We, I have a friend uh, who's well known to you and a very eminent historian who I will not name who refuses to sign any letters that they have not written, uh, even for the best of causes. Huh. And uh, thinking about the events of the past week, I think that might be a very sensible policy. And this is somebody who's, who's probably... It, if they did sign a letter it would probably uh, it w- it would carry some impact. I would, uh, I would agree. Um, yes. I and mean, when we talked about this individual yes, I, 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 You know I, who I'm talking I'm, about. I know who you're talking
0: and, about. And and because it's their choice I'm not going to name them. Um, yeah, right. um, I mean there is a the question about how effective these are and and and, and we, I guess we can get to that. So one of the things that strikes me about these open letters though is they do require some kind of media to work, Yes, right? And so I think you know the genre of the open letter really coincides with the genre mostly of newspapers, right? I think of newspapers and sort of adjacent media as being fundamental for the creation of this as as a genre, at least in its modern iteration. I guess there are ancient versions of the open letter. You can think of like the letters of St. Paul. I was going to say, most of the New Testament is an open open letter. (laughs) Yes. Yes. to be sure, right, uh, and they had they had their own uh, you know, methods of, of dissemination then. But in terms of the sort of modern iteration, I think there's something connected with uh, you know the rise of, of mass consumption newspapers and
1: print culture. Yeah I, yeah, I think that's
0: absolutely true. I mean, are Luther's ninety five theses an open letter of a yeah? Well, or? yeah, but he had to nail them to a yeah. door, and then you have, if you wanted to read them, you had to go to the door and look at them. Right. Um, so let's let's talk about some from the from the revolutionary era. Open let there were lots of sort of open letters and open letter adjacent things. I think in the revolution, there's lots of sort of anonymous letters published in newspapers from people who took on curious uh, pseudonyms. Yeah, and you
1: also get so, so there are a couple things. Uh, one one thinks about the 18th century, particularly the latter 18th century. Uh, there's a belief often that letters are kind of open anyway, mm. and so, but there are also so so people write letters on the assumption that they might be read by others, <laughs> okay. beyond the intended, um, uh, the the person to whom it's addressed, uh, and, and they know that's a risk. On the other hand, there are very careful social rules and expectations about. Um, reading somebody's private mail. Hmm. And so there are there are notable cases of people getting in trouble for, for, for revealing uh, the contents of private letters. Uh, but people like Jefferson and Washington, you know, they assume their letters, that there's always a danger their letters might be read. Washington, in fact the rift that eventually ends the friendship between Jefferson and Washington arises because Jefferson said some unpleasant things about Washington in a letter that made their way to the newspaper.
0: For fuller details, listeners <laughs> get a free order of Frank's book, which is probably not available for free order yet, but but get it when it comes out. Um, and, thank you David, uh, but, but
1: that was not an open letter, it was not intended to be an open letter, although Jefferson knew or certainly when he wrote it, he wasn't so naive as to, to uh, he would have expected that people might read that letter, mm. uh, but it was, that it shouldn't make its way into print. Right. So th- this is that that boundary you were, you were talking about of the importance of print. There's also a kind of whole genre of writing, of epistolatory uh, writing. So we get lots of epistolatory novels that take the form of letters in the 18th century. But we also get non-fiction Epistles. So you have the, one of the most famous pre-revolutionary pamphlets is John Dickinson's Letters from an American Farmer. Um, and Dickinson's a Pennsylvania lawyer, Philadelphia lawyer, presents himself as a as a farmer. Um, and he is a farmer, but or
0: he he's a plantation. A farmer, a farmer. In, in, yeah. in, in the eighteenth century sense the word. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, or or Kravker's, um Letters from an American Farmer, uh, published in seventeen eighty two. I'm not sure those are open letters in the same way that we're talking about them. However, we do get open letters in the kind of modern sense in the revolutionary period. One of the most famous is the um, Massachusetts Circular Letter of 1768. And what happened in 1768 is the Massachusetts General Court, which is the was the legislature um, in Massachusetts, drafted a letter condemning the British government's... Uh, Latest tax tax uh, rafter taxes the Townsend duties, um, and claimed that the Townsend duties were were um, unconstitutional, and they circulated this letter. It's called the circular letter, but they circulated this letter uh, to all the other mainland colonies to gin up support for opposing the the Townsend duties. The British government ordered the legislature of Massachusetts to revoke the letter. In the way that those Harvard professors revoked their letter uh, last week, maybe not exactly in (laughs) the way, but they and the Massachusetts um, legislature voted ninety-two to seventeen against revoking the letter. Huh. And so 92 became a very patriotic number. It became, you know, the kind of semiotics of revolution. You know, they, they would give 92 toasts and 92 cheers. And the, It's a big number if you're going to cheer a toast. Just, exactly. <laughs> but 92 assumed this kind of political significance in, in 1768 and beyond, at least in New England. Because the legislature refused to revoke the letter, the royal governor of Massachusetts, Francis Bernard, dissolved the legislature... Which resulted in a bit of a political crisis in Massachusetts, including lots of uh, demonstrations and crowd actions and rioting and so forth, and that resulted in Britain sending troops to to uh, occupy Boston in October of 1768, and those troops would stay for another eight years until 1776. And so this and those the Boston Massacre resulted the Boston Tea Party. So this is a letter that has consequences. This is a letter that has consequences. Some of the other colonies express support for it, Uh, Virginia and Connecticut New Jersey, I think, but its consequences are it's the dispute over the letter. So it's very public nature, and the fact that it becomes the object of a uh, political controversy between uh, the government in Massachusetts, in Boston, and uh, the British government in London, I think this is is an open letter that actually has pretty... um, Serious, uh, it's quite an important open letter. It's a good example of an open letter that I think is effective.
0: Okay. Uh, I imagine there were a bunch of open letters then that were not effective?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're... they're, Letter writing is really important in this period because it's the way people commun- its the primary way people communicate. So there are committees of correspondence during mm. the revolution, and these are—I always think of these as like Facebook groups or listservs. Facebook if you groups remember for listservs. the revolution. Yeah. Yes. If, okay. if you remember listservs in the early days of the internet, it's mm. so a little bit like that. So it's like, hey, we got to get our act together, and and they're communicating and. The committees of correspondence, which exist in most of the major towns in, in the mainland colonies, are sharing information and circulating information and organizing their resistance. And they're quite effective. But there are lots of open letters in this period, mo- some of which are effective or, or significant, some of which are not. I, like our period. Sure. Oh,
0: to be sure. I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me about how many of them are today, it's like a, they, they seem like they're going out into the ether and just uh, don't amount to much. So
1: Well... We need to get to the modern period, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too far. But it does. I, I do wonder whether social media makes open letters less effective, not more so, because you people it makes them easier. Tweet, it makes them easier, but there's just so much noise out there. Mm. Um, that you know there were there were a handful of newspapers there weren't that many newspapers in Revolutionary America you could you could you, read could, read all of, the you papers. could read all the papers read all of it <laughs> uh, and, and so it was it was it was a different age in that way what about the nineteenth century David moving uh, on to your yeah i have so some...
0: got three I, I think good open letters or at least interesting open letters I mean, they're all good um, first is from uh, William Travis uh, from February of of eighteen thirty six. William Travers, the Texas listeners will know this, was the commander of the Alamo. And the Alamo siege starts on the 23rd of February. He writes this letter on the 24th. It is, it is called often called the letter uh, to the people of Texas and all the Americans in the world. So he is under siege. He's got a handful of guys with him. And he writes this letter... I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for twenty hour, 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrisoner would be put to the sword if the fort is taken. He says he's not going to surrender, and he calls on people to come and give him aid. He writes this message. He then sends it off with a, a messenger, and it gets republished in... Uh, literally hundreds of newspapers, both in Texas and, and around uh, the country, and even in Europe. Uh, and men come to uh, the Alamo to, to try to support uh, Travis and, and his garrison there, so that's a response to the letter. But a much larger number of people come after the fall of the Alamo uh, and are important in the, Mexic- or the Texas victory over the Mexicans in some subsequent battles. Uh, so that's an open letter that was really a call for help uh, and has become a very famous letter in sort of the Texas mythology. Uh, the letter itself, we actually have the original letter. Um, it was, uh, it's now, I think it's the Texas State Museum. Um, but a couple of years ago, they took it back to the Alamo and put it on display in the Alamo. So the letter had become. Phil Collins didn't <laughs> buy it? No, well, I don't think it was for sale. <laughs> so, uh, so but, uh, this
1: would seem to me to be a, a really good example of an, uh, of an effective, effective open letter. letter. Yes.
0: Yes. Because he wrote to call for support. support and the support and came. And it came. The support came. Um, Mal came on time. Uh, and obviously, the support that came on time didn't actually help uh, <laughs> Travis and, and the people in the Alamo. Uh, but, uh, you know, the text of the letter has become sort of iconic uh, with at least within, within within Texas. You know, it gets taught in schools and, and, and it has a, a fairly, uh, you know, it has the sort of place of, 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 you know, the constitution or the you know declaration of independence in, in the sort of Texas mentality of who they are and what the, the independent Texas was all about. Um, so that's a fascinating open letter that actually had a response. Second example is one that I often teach. And I think actually, Lots of people teach, and that's Abraham Lincoln's letter to Horace Greeley in eighteen sixty two. Um, Abraham Lincoln actually wrote several open letters during the Civil War, and this is this is the the most famous of them of them. And it's actually an open letter that's a response to an open letter that Horace Greeley had written. So it's an open it's an open correspondence, I guess. Uh, and Greeley, uh, in in August of eighteen sixty two, had written in really is a newspaper publisher from New York, uh, very politically active, uh, publisher of the New York Tribune. He writes this editorial called The Prayer of the 20 Millions, which is a letter ostensibly to Lincoln, complaining that Lincoln has not done enough to enforce the Second Confiscation Act and to take meaningful action for emancipation. And Lincoln writes uh, a letter back ostensibly although it's it's a letter that Lincoln actually publishes in a rival newspaper and then it gets reprinted so we really have a
1: pair of open letters, letters
0: yes yeah they're in conversation with each other and so he writes back and says dear Mr. Greeley etc um the part of the letter that get there's, there's two parts of letters that get quoted a lot where he's explaining uh what his stance is he said I would save the union I would save it in the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be to the Union as it was. But then he goes on to say, My paramount objective in the struggle is to save the Union. It's not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would do that. that's part of the letter that gets quoted a lot because it makes mm-hmm. Lincoln look, look sort of agnostic on the question of emancipation, or at least it looks as emancipation as being profoundly secondary to emancipation. The letter ends, though, with Lincoln saying, I have here stated my offic- my purpose according to my view of official duty and tend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Yours, A. Lincoln.
1: People don't quote that one as much, do they?
0: Well, I mean, I think if you want Lincoln to be an abolitionist, you quote the second line. If you want Lincoln to be a white supremacist, you quote the first line. You put them in conjunction with each other. It's a very hard line to read. Very Lincolnian. Well, and the the tricky bit, if you really try to put this letter in context, is Lincoln had actually already decided to issue an Emancipation Proclamation when he writes this letter. So this question about freeing some of the slaves and not freeing other slaves or freeing none of them, he'd actually already made that decision but he was waiting for a Union victory, which is going to come in Antietam a month later uh, before officially in issue, issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, so it's a very complicated letter because you can read the text in different ways. And if you understand what's going on behind the scenes, it means something slightly different. Uh, but that's an open letter that's in response to another open letter. Uh, and Lincoln does this a couple times in the war where he's writing open letters in response to people who had written open letters to him, criticizing various Union policies, especially about emancipation, um, you know, and I'm thinking about how a president communicates with uh, the public, right? Like this is this is one of the tools, one of the few tools that they have in the 19th century to engage in this kind of mass. There's no radio or television. Yeah, you can't he can't have a fireside chat. Um, and so you know, when somebody criticizes them, he can write back, and and you know, it, it is in the form of a letter, even if it's. Uh, basically just a speech or something that, that's put in a different medium. Uh, the third example that I think is fascinating for the 19th century, and there's tons of other ones I could have picked, uh, is a letter from George Washington Williams. Do you know who George Washington Williams is? I don't. Have, okay, well, that, the, many people don't, but he's a somebody people should know about. There's a great biography uh, of, of Williams by, by John Hope Franklin, uh, the great African-American historian. Uh, George Washington Williams was an uh, African-American man he was born free in Pennsylvania. Uh, at the age of fourteen, he runs away from home to enlist in the Union Army. He sort of assumes a fake name and enlists underage. Fights in in a couple uh, battles at the very end of the war. Um, afterwards, he becomes uh, he becomes ordained and he, he he's a he's a preacher. He's a lawyer. He's a historian. He writes. Uh, two very important books about black history. He writes The History of the Negro Race in America, 1619 to 1880, and History of the Negro Troops in the War of the Rebellion. Uh, So really important stuff. He's the first African-American elected to the state legislature in Ohio. So he he does a bunch of different things. He's a very uh, accomplished person during his short life. Uh, In... uh, 1890, he goes to Europe, and he goes and he travels around, goes and he visits Belgium, and he gets to meet King Leopold II, who uh, at that point was, you know, the, the king of uh, not only of Belgium but of this large imperial empire, especially in uh, Congo, and 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 talks with with Leopold, and Leopold's telling him how great Belgium is and how great this colony in the Congo is, and and and. George Washington Williams says, "Well, what's it like for the, you know, the African people uh, who, who are living there?" Oh, he says, "Oh no, it's it's great. They're they're t- t- we treat take great care of them," and and, and Williams is like, "Are you sure?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they have a great life. We we've improved their lives dramatically." Williams is like, "Okay, I'll go check it out," and he goes down to Belgian Congo, and he writes a letter back to ostensibly uh, King Leopold II, but it's a published letter, so it's to the rest of the world, really, about conditions he sees in the Belgian Congo. Did he write in English or French? He wrote uh, in English, I think. Uh, The version I have is in English because my French is bad. Um, He he says in the letter, it's a very long letter, it's very, it's worth reading. He says, your majesty's government has sequestered their land, burned their towns, stolen their property, enslaved their women and children, and committed other crimes too numerous to mention in detail. All the crimes perpetrated in the Congo have been done in your name, and you must answer to the bar of public sentiment for the misgovernment of a people whose lives and fortunes were entrusted to you. Uh, and and it's such a damaging letter that King Leopold II has to write a letter back in public, sort of defending his his rule in in the Congo. Um, unfortunately, uh, Williams died uh, on his return trip from the Congo of illness. He's actually buried in England somewhere. Um, but that's a, a fascinating open letter. Um, some people have seen that letter as sort of a precursor to the anti-imperialism you see in the United States uh, at the end of that, you know, later in that decade, in fact. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the, that, that turn of the 20th century or the end of the 19th century is, I think, really a... Arguably, the age of the the great age of the open letter, because you also get Zola's in France, Zola's letter. Oh, that's um, the most famous, Jactus probably about of, the Dreyfus yeah. affair, um, as well, and that that's one of the most probably one of the most famous open letters in modern history. Again, I think the the the, the, the biblical books in the okay. New Testament are probably the most famous open letters in history. <laughs> Fine, um, but but um, yeah, very interesting. I, I, I was unaware of that
0: one. Okay. That's that's that's, that's um, really... I think we both one letter we both had in our list though was Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham. Yeah, but before we do that, like, oh. if we're going to go chronologically, I think oh. there's,
1: another, there's one before that I want to discuss, which is um, George Kennan. Oh, uh, and the so-called Long Telegram of yes. February twenty second, nineteen forty six. George Kennan was an American uh, diplomat in in Moscow at that point. Uh, he wrote this long telegram, and it was long. It was eight thousand words long. So I, I hope he wasn't paying per word, yeah. but or the now State we've, Department. We
0: mentioned this letter uh, telegram sometimes in pre- previous episodes. I'm it's sure a very did. important document. Right,
1: and and in it, um, Kennan. So it was addressed to his 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 bosses at the State Department. But in it, um, uh, Kennan laid out the uh, strategy of containment, which basically became us the U.S. policy and strategy during. Uh, for the next 40 years during the Cold War. So it's really, really significant in terms of the history of American foreign policy. It's originally sent as a, as a telegram, as a kind of draft to the State Department. It's published the following year, a kind of revised version of it is published um, anonymously. It's the so-called X uh, uh, address uh, in Foreign Affairs magazine, which is a magazine that doesn't have a huge readership, except it's got a quite influential readership. It's read by people who make policy in the United States, make foreign policy, that is, and so it, that, that that's an example of a letter that um, was addressed to a particular audience. And again, writing pseudonymously, Cannon again laid out the he called it the sources of Soviet conduct. So he explained why the Soviet Union was doing what it was doing and tried to um, outline a, a U.S. policy for that. And again, as a as a open letter. And perhaps we're stretching the boundaries of what what constitutes a letter. In the in this in this case, um, it's quite influential because it shaped U.S. policy for the next forty years. So I th- I think that's quite an important one. At least I would. You, does oh, that, oh, does oh, that yes. fit the
0: definition for you? Uh, I think it, it's on the margins, but I well, uh, You know, I'm, I'm flexible with my definitions here. <laughs> you know, because... judge rules. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it begins as as a private correspondence. You know, an official document. And when he publishes it, I mean, my understanding is, is, is it was anonymous, but basically it was anonymous and everybody knew who it was. Um, so I, th- I don't think his identity was all that disguised to the people who were reading it in foreign affairs. Certainly not the people who were going to make the policy. Exactly. They
1: would have said, oh, this is familiar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, so yeah, but then go on to talk about the, uh, the probably the most famous open letter, I think, in,
0: in modern U.S. Yeah. history. well... The background to this one is this one is also the, the Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail, is also another open letter that's a response to another open letter, because it's a letter that, that King writes when he is imprisoned in Birmingham Jail in April of 1963, during one of the many times he was uh, imprisoned during the Civil Rights Movement. But he's writing a letter in response to uh, an open letter that was published in the newspaper. Uh, called, the letter that he's writing in response to was called A Call for Unity, which was written by eight uh, local white clergymen. And they took issue with uh, events that were, that were in their words, were directed and led in part by outsiders. And they urged activists to engage in, in, in negotiations and to use the courts. Uh, but that rather, these had protests or they said are destructive, we shouldn't protest, you should be patient, you should let courts and, and, and calm negotiations. Um, and they thought that was preferable to protest, which they saw as being disruptive. And King writes his letter from Birmingham jail as a response to that. Originally, he writes it on the margins of, of like scraps of newspaper he had when he was in jail and other sort of slips of paper that he had uh, when the, eventually they, he's release and they're able to sort of put together they have sort of cobbled together these different scraps of paper that he has but he writes it as a response addressed to these eight local clergymen articulating why he thought protest was both necessary uh, and needed in uh, in Birmingham and and indeed across the south you know and he says look uh, I'm he says I'm not an outsider in part because I was invited by by local people to participate here in 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 protest events. But he also said more broadly that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's one of the more famous lines from this letter. Um, he writes, you know, very critically of white people who he says are being sympathetic, but uh, but are not doing anything. He says at various points in, in a variety of different ways. He says, look, the problem in his mind is not as much the Klan or the White Citizens Council, but it's a, Moderate whites who, by their inaction, support racist systems, um, and it's a, if you have not read the letter from Birmingham Jail, I mean, all many of these letters are worth reading, but I think that one is definitely one that is worth sort of meditating on, because uh, it, it's a very moving piece of writing. Um, it's something I try to read at least, you know, once a year just to get my head straight, because it's a, it's both very eloquent and and remains pertinent even, um, you know, 60 years after it was written. Yeah, it's
1: very powerful. And, you know, you, you quoted the, the the most famous line that everybody quotes. <laughs> mm. uh, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But there are another couple of lines that struck me in that when I reread it for, for today. One is he refers to an inescapable network of mutuality. And the reason I noted that down was I thought, that's kind of the whole premise of the open letter. Mm. It's it's it, One writes an open letter because one believes that there is a community, however defined, that one wants to reach. Mm-hmm. And, and the most effective of these open letters succeed in doing so. And I, 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 so, so that inescapable network of mutuality is, is a quite poetic way of describing the whole point of the exercise. He also says, and this is with regard to that question mm-hmm. of outsiders and outside agitators and so on, anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Which is a, a quite a powerful statement in terms. Uh, um, I think both in nineteen sixty three and frankly today, to where sure. we have divisions about who are real Americans and who lives yeah. where, and 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 so on and so forth. So those two things struck me. So I agree. I agree with you, David. That that's quite a powerful letter. Is it impactful? I mean, we all read it. It gets assigned to kids in school, and it should be. And it's a, it, it, you know. It,
0: For a while, they were having a reading of it in Congress every but, year. Um, I think they still are. Um, that's a good question. So it gets published shortly after uh, King is released from jail. He's actually bailed out by uh, the uh, the head of uh, the auto workers union. So go, go unions. Um, Frank and I are on strike right now for listeners who aren't aware. Anyway, uh, so it is republished in a number of different forms in, in the immediate aftermath of King's release. And especially it gets published in predominantly white media. And you know it's hard to sort of ascertain exactly what its impact is, but it definitely I think is part of that the, the the shift of of public sentiment towards things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Is it critical for either of those things? No, but is I think does it contribute to that you know shift in public sentiment towards uh, supporting those pieces of legislation? I think they are. What do you think?
1: I think you're right, and I think again that concept of the inescapable network of mutuality. He's to some extent directing that at white liberals and moderates. Yeah, say, yeah, yes. If you want to be part of this network of mutuality, mm-hmm. you need to you need to think about this. You yes. need to think about your own complicity. Yeah. And and I think it's 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 you know if Kennan's letter is basically aimed at a quite small public, the foreign policy elite. Uh, or the the, the the elite that makes foreign policy to put it another way mm. King's letter is very different because it really is open it's seeking to broaden the circle and see you know to, to broaden that network and that's incredibly important in getting that legislation yeah. passed
0: well it's it's intriguing in that respect. Cause on the one hand it is open and accessible to everybody it's part of the reason why people continue to read that letter is because it is you know the the, the the claims that it's making about the responsibilities of, of people and the how inaction is, is in itself a, a kind of a form of oppression. Um, on the other hand, there are parts in the letter that are very sort of specific theologically, that, you know, thinking about this as a letter written to eight white clergymen. Right. You know, there's some, some, some theological uh, references and biblical quotations and also references to... Uh, other modern theologians that, you know, uh, probably meant a lot more to them than they do to me or would make to most readers. Uh, so it, it does both of those things. Um, OK, what about letters? What about letters since then? Uh, one of our favorites. So
1: David and I came up with our list separately, but we have compared notes and they were they were broadly similar. So uh, one of one of our favorites, I guess, is Bill Gates, open letter to hobbyists from January of 1976 and he wrote it in so this is a very the,
0: young bill gates
1: this is a very young bill gates writing in a, in a computer newsletter and it's worth seeking this out on the internet and seeing a, looking at an image of it because it's a newsletter in the way newsletters used to be in the 1970s which is basically somebody typing it up on a, on on, a, on paper yeah. and and you know circulating it probably mimeograph um, yeah, yep, um, exactly. Or, or, or early photocopy, and basically, it's a letter addressed to the early, the early computing um, community saying, "Don't steal my stuff." And he's upset that basic software, his basic software. Um, is being used by people who aren't paying for it. Yeah. Basic software
0: here, by the way, is basic programming language, right. not basic in terms of elementary. Yes, yeah. thank you.
1: Um, but but uh, it's it's remarkable because anybody who spent any part of the subsequent 40 years having to update their system or buying Microsoft mm. software or being frustrated by how... It's less difficult to access now than it used to be because they've changed their business model. Yeah. Bill Gates' instincts are there from the outset. And he, he makes a valid point. He says, yeah. look... If you're all stealing this from me, you know, we can't keep developing it. Because, you yeah, know, I think he uses the example of, like, they're only making three cents. So yeah, exactly, um, yeah. He, um, says,
0: he says, the majority of hobbyists must be aware most of you steal your software, right? Like, he's saying, like, I know you guys all steal stuff. Why? Because I made this product and nobody bought it, but all of you use it. Therefore, it must be stolen. And he, and he said, like, hardware must be paid for. You all agree you can't steal your hardware, but software is something to share you guys, and he says, no, you can't do that if you want good software, you got to pay for it which thinking about how the internet is developed in in the subsequent you know um forty years, you know the amount of stuff that gets shared illegally and stolen and ripped and and you know lime wire all that kind of stuff it's a fascinating, fascinating open letter. I don't know how effective it was. I don't know how whether all the hobbyists then felt guilty and sent him a buck twenty five for their copy of uh,
1: yeah, because it's basically hectoring, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he, he's appealing... To, he's trying to appeal, as open letters often do. I yeah. mean...
0: The moral uh, appeal.
1: Yeah, it, it's moral suasion. It's, a, you know, I mean, and King did that very effectively. I think uh, <laughs> Gates' appeal to the hobbyists was probably less effective, although... Uh, he seems made to a, have done you know, okay. He's made a little <laughs> bit of money since then, so he's been... He landed on his feet. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a very interesting letter. And then one, one of my favorite, more recent ones, Mm. is the open letter of Bobby Henderson to the Kansas School Board in 2005. And in this, Kansas at that point was debating whether to teach intelligent design. I think we've talked about this in a previous episode. Intelligent design alongside um, evolution in schools. And Bobby Henderson wrote a letter to the Kansas School Board, which is very amusing, uh, in which he articulated the, the idea. He his he claimed a belief in the uh, creation by the flying spaghetti monster. Yes. With this noodley appendage. Um, yes, yes, and yes. he said millions of people believe this but are afraid to say it. Yes. And he wanted the flying spaghetti monster taught alongside Christianity or, or no, biblical. No. Um, yeah. If you're going to teach intelligent design, you have to teach this as well. You don't
0: want to oppress the Pastafarians.
1: That's right. <laughs> That's um, right. And, and it, this is, uh, I mean, we, we laugh. There's a long tradition which we haven't touched on much in these letters. Uh, uh, there's this kind of subgenre of satirical open letters. Uh, Mark Twain wrote a lot of these. Benjamin Franklin Friedrich. wrote them. Um, and 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 I, I think this is of a piece with that.
0: I, I think so too. I mean the the other sort of recent one that that in terms of ones that may be effective or may not be effective, uh, Warren Buffett's open letter to Congress that he published in the New York Times in 2011 basically telling Congress to tax rich people. Um, Congress obviously didn't tax rich people. But President Obama referenced Buffett's letter in his State of the Union address subsequently. Um, and so I think that suggests you know that these things still have lots of currency.
1: David, we've only talked about men. Is this a genre that guys do? Although there were a lot of... Women signers to the Harvard letter last no, week, sure. um, and we don't know who actually wrote that letter. But in general, all all the letters we've discussed so far are by by men.
0: That's a uh, an intriguing observation. Um, you know, I think there there are lots of open letters written by by uh, women abolitionists. There are open letters that are written and signed by. Um, uh, uh, suffragists who are writing about you know likewise in, in newspapers. Uh, the de- the declaration at Seneca Falls is kind of a letter. I mean you could if you if you want to read this thing's in a more open sense, the Declaration of Independence is a letter uh, of, of a kind. It's an Right, and
1: and the Declaration of Sentiments in eighteen forty eight is, is a reworking, reworking of the right? you yeah. uh,
0: So if you are it depends you of of know, you know, you there does seem to be a proliferation of open letters, though, in recent years. In fact, I've seen a number of articles in the past decade that complain about the number of open letters. But are they as
1: effective in, in the sense that it, it, there's so much information out there? Mm-hmm. There are so many ways to share information now, whether it's via TikTok or share opinions, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, do they matter? Has the has the age the great age of the open letter ended?
0: I, I think uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think the number of open letters has increased, uh, but I think that there's still potential for open letters to be relevant. I mean, part of the reason why you know this letter at at Harvard and the subsequent other letters and the retractions and whatnot, part of the reason why we're paying attention to those open letters and having this conversation at all is because. The names attached to those letters are names that you know have some some weight attached to them.
1: Well, particularly and, in our world, and well,
0: especially in our small circle. Well, you know, and again with the Bill Gates letter, like that is that's a small world of people, but you know, which Bill Gates is, is important. Um,
1: but that's a letter that presumably gained retrospective importance because of what but, Bill, what Microsoft and Bill Gates became.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, we don't, we didn't have a be fascinating to find out what, how people responded to that letter at the time. And oh, our ability to Bill be, again, there you, you go, you it. know, but... <laughs> but, you know, it, it, we have a capacity now for, for discussion about these letters and about everything else uh, that, that is sort of un, unparalleled. I mean, I think the necessity of having these conversations mediated through newspapers like most of these letters or magazines, in some cases, or other kinds of periodicals, you know, we don't... They don't serve the same threshold effect that that they used to, right? I, mean, I think the the role that editors play in choosing which letters to publish and what things not to publish, now any any idiot with a computer or a phone can publish an open letter. Well,
1: uh, so that brings us back to the Harvard letter of last week, the mm. first Harvard letter, <laughs> um, which is you're right. These were prominent people. These are people who you know well. It's public knowledge. Joe Lapore, who writes in the New Yorker, signed mm. it. She's got a pretty big public presence and um, knows something about um, mass communication. Uh, I still think they didn't realize what a big deal that was going to become. Mm. So, so although it was public, it was academics signing something, and probably not. I, 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 I. Or if they did, they didn't think the response would be what it was. They couldn't have. Uh, clearly, so I think the yeah. backlash. You know, if if if, if thirty eight people sign a letter on Monday and thirty four of them seek to revoke their signatures by Friday, they've clearly misjudged the moment. And in part, I think that's because open letters don't have the impact they used to. And this, I think, it's an outlier. Don't you?
0: Ah. Uh. We see enough of these things where, where I think it, it, the, the significance attached to it and the flurry over it, you know, which is quick and now almost over. Um, although I'm imagining the Harvard faculty meetings are going to be pretty tense. One thing I've been thinking about uh, in our conversation is, on the one hand, the Harvard letter seems to be a cautionary tale for never signing a PUP open letter. Because of... of all the backlash. On the other hand, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail suggests if you don't sign the open letter, whether you, you know, or make, you know, if you don't take a stand in public for things, um, then you are complicit in it, which says says that if there's an open letter, you should sign it if you believe in what it says. And I'm trying to rectify those two uh, contradictory impulses from open. The lesson from the episode,
1: but most of the letters we've discussed and certainly the most effective ones have been written by individuals mm. prominent individuals in most cases and addressed to larger groups as opposed to group letters yeah as opposed to group, group letters, letters. Okay. so 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 i mean the exception might be the 1768 Massachusetts circular letter because but that even that was sent on behalf of the great and general court of the yeah. of Massachusetts it wasn't um, it wasn't signed by a bunch of people. Well, I'm not sure about that, but, think most of them are by individuals and for whatever reason they attain pro- prominence as opposed to online petitions or group letters.
0: To be sure. I mean, I, you know, the, 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 the letters that I've signed, the ones that have, you know, received press notification, you know, the things about impeachment or what have you, um, You know, I'm not sure how effective any of those were, but I don't know. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very thoughtful in. I've tried to be thoughtful in the past, but I'm gonna be even more thoughtful maybe in the future about signing things.
1: I think our mutual friends' policy of never signing a letter that they haven't written might be a sound
0: policy. I'm gonna have to reflect on that more. I think as listeners probably should too. Right. Yeah. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What you got?
1: Yeah, I want to recommend... Uh, I thought I might have mentioned this before, but I haven't, uh, according to you anyway. At least I don't remember. Uh, okay, so well, <laughs> if you don't remember, our listeners won't. Uh, I want to recommend a show on Peacock, an NBC program called Rutherford Falls. And Rutherford Falls is uh, a sitcom produced by... Um, Ed Helms will be known to people as the actor who was in, uh, I guess most famously, in The um, in the Office, but he's been in a number of things and films and so on. But Ed Helms, Michael Shore, who will be well known to people. Yes. He was also in The Office and was a writer on Saturday Night Live, but was the producer for Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place um, and a number of other um, quite successful sitcoms in, in recent years. But also a woman named Sierra Teller, Ornelas, those were the three um, kind of main producers and, and um, writers of this program. And it's a sitcom about a small town in up, upstate New York, which um, named Rutherford Falls. And it's named for one of uh, the prominent family that settled that, t- that, that um, town. Um, and Ed Helms plays the modern descendant. Uh, he's the modern representative of the Rutherford family. This town has a local um, Native American casino um and and there are tensions and the, the plot of it is about the, basically the casino owner or the the man who runs the casino uh is much more effective at at managing both his business but also politics and public relations that Ed Helms is and there are the tensions about historical memory there's a big statue called uh, it's a statue of of the founder of the town Called Big Larry, which is in the center of the town. And the, the dispute, the first series is about whether to remove this statue or not. So it's about historical memory and statues and indigeneity. It's very funny. And what's interesting and important about it is, and we see some echoes of this in Parks and Rec, which Michael Shore also mm. produced, um, about debates over historical memory. What's really different, I think, about Rutherford Falls from Parks and Rec, for example, is the prominence of indigenous voices. So indigenous actors and also indigenous writers uh, and producers on the program. So it's very good. So I think it's available in, it's certainly available in the UK on Peacock. But, um, and I think it's on Peacock in the US as well. All right. So Rutherford Falls is mine. Sounds good. Yeah, it's it's very good. If you're looking for um, a kind of entertaining but thought-provoking watch. All right. So, yeah. What about you, David? You uh, well,
0: recommend two things. One, briefly, is something I've recommended before, but seems appropriate to re-recommend it in this episode, and that's Heather Cox Richardson's Letters yep. from an American. Yes. Which is, uh, which is a uh, daily um, letter from, ostensibly from Heather, to, to, to anybody who wants to subscribe to her newsletter. Um, but it's a, a, a really great and thoughtful uh, contextualization of, of current events with from a, a very talented historian. Um, I think I've recommended it before, but if you don't subscribe to, to that, uh, definitely do it. The, the new piece I want to recommend uh, is an article in the National Geographic magazine by Tara Roberts that looks at a, a group of divers uh, who are uh, cataloging and chronicling uh, sunken slave ships. Uh, so ships that, that sank during the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, and the intriguing thing about this group of divers who are doing this is that most of them are um, of African descent or African-American or, or uh, African-Caribbean. And and so part of the uh, article is about the, what they find underwater and the ships and the history and what have you. But also it's about their personal the, the experience of the divers and how they are relating to the, the work that they're doing. So a fascinating article uh, on, on diving and, and history and memory. So cheers, Frank. Cheers, Valentine. <laughs> the Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silconet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.